Everybody has to go through this. Everybody that starts in this business is overwhelmed and intimidated. But believe me, get into the game, get into the business, make those mistakes, learn from those mistakes, and that will develop good judgment. We'll call it maybe even wisdom after a while, but good judgment, and that really just takes time. Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Secrets to Igniting Your Business with Bela and Mike. I'm Bela Musitz, the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at Clarkson University in upstate New York. And I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the University of Applied Sciences in Münster, Germany. This podcast is about conversations with successful entrepreneurs you've never heard of who have built successful businesses you have never heard of. Businesses and entrepreneurs that we can all identify with. In each episode, I think we try to capture and share the essence of how interesting people often take unconventional paths to build their businesses. So we decided to interview a wide range of business people that have found and taken unconventional paths in their careers. And what we hope to do is capture some lessons, advice, inspiration that'll help you attain your entrepreneurial goals. So join us for interesting conversations and discussions with what we think are really inspiring guests on how you can ignite your business by exploring some of the many less traveled unconventional paths that lie ahead. So if you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a review on your favorite podcasting application. If you have suggestions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Well, hi, Mike. Uh, what did you think of... Uh our discussion with you, Johnson, today. Uh, here's a nice example of uh, someone who uh, midlife left the corporate environment and blazed out on his own. Uh, what was one or two of the key things that you really thought uh, were interesting in the interview with you, Johnson? Bela, this was a great interview with somebody who I've seen on TV and, and have always had a lot of respect for, which is which was fun to, to hear the conversation. Hugh talked about three or four really important issues. First, uh, was the role of courage. And to hear him talk about courage to me was really fascinating to think about courage in terms of how it develops, uh, how you practice courage, um, and then what it means to be courageous. Uh, same with perseverance. He called it stick to itness, right? Um, others call it resilience, right? Or perseverance. But um, I think that was really fascinating. Um, and then really his discussion of um, data analytics, quantitative analysis and technology. I think there's a lot there for potential entrepreneurs looking to make a switch uh, to really develop something that's unique and interesting. So those are really the key uh, interesting points. But there was lots of little tidbits uh, embedded in that conversation that I thought were fantastic. I thought you uh, was really great. When I went to talk to him, I felt like I was going up to the top of the mountain to talk to, you know, the great wise person uh, who, who can shed some great experience uh, and wisdom uh, on how he has been successful and the key characteristics he has used in his life uh, to get him to that point. So there was many, many great tidbits of information and good lessons uh, inside this conversation with him. So let's just get right to it and start the uh, interview with you, Johnson. Uh, but before we dive in, let me just remind you, uh, remind your listeners that if you have any questions or comments, uh, please feel free to reach out to Mike and I 
uh, and email us at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And if you like what you hear, please give us a favorable review on iTunes. Now on to you, Johnson. Hello. Today I'm here with Hugh Johnson, an internationally well-known economic forecaster and guru of the financial markets. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this uh, view. Thank you very much for participating. Nice to be here with you. So you, a number of years ago, you, you left uh, a big firm and sort of started out on your own. Yeah. And so what have some of the challenges been in, in kind of being out on your own? Well, of course, the first challenge is having the courage to try to figure out if you can do it and you can't do it. And I, I think, and then the second challenge is, is, is how are you going to meet your payroll with your American Express card? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's having the courage to do it uh, is, is certainly the certainly the first step. And I think where the courage comes from, at least it came from in my my particular instance, is that I thought I had. Uh, I, I had a good idea as to what to do, a different way to uh, manage assets, to manage them effectively for both individuals and institutional investors. And I thought that only given time that uh, the world would realize it and beat be a be path to my doorway. But believe me, the courage is number one. And number two is, is recognizing that you're going to go at least initially through some very difficult times, from very difficult times financially. And, you know, just having the courage to, to weather that and the perseverance, really, st the stick to itness uh, is, is really one of the key essential ingredients. So it's a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. What was one of the biggest challenges you encountered? Well, of course, money initially is one of the biggest challenges. But, um, you know, I, I don't think that, uh, you know, there was anything particularly challenging in some one respect is that I had a lot of people. Uh, that joined me when we we actually left First Albany. We bought the company from First Albany, and, uh, and then we had a lot of other people that joined me in that, and they were all as committed as I was. First of all, we all became, including myself, obviously, but became shareholders, uh, members uh, of the LLC, became, you know, we had a stake in the, in the success of the company, and you'd be surprised what that does to yes. the kind of the attitude and the uh, of the, of the individuals the other individuals that joined me so very good effective people working with me we all worked together we all worked very hard and uh, that 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 did a lot but again it's stick to itness is really the key thing yeah, through thick or through thin, through difficult times, which are probably at the start, you'll see plenty of difficult times or challenges. Yes. So, what's been one of the most rewarding things in this experience of splitting well, out the, the, the Yeah, uh, Bela, I'll tell you, the most rewarding thing is is waking up in the morning and saying, "Hey, it worked," and <laughs> you know, just just being successful. And and uh, there were many times when I, I questioned, I wondered whether this this uh, organization, this firm, would survive. Uh, but it did survive. And uh, waking up now and knowing it's on firm financial footing, uh, that it's got uh, that it's growing and growing and being relatively successful, successful, just the, the feeling of success is, is really uh, extremely rewarding and feeling that you're being successful for the right reason. It's not so much that you're lining your own pockets. That has nothing to do with it. It's that you're doing good things for a lot of clients out there. You're giving them good investment results and performance. You're helping them with some of their more difficult problems, such as tax planning, estate planning, financial planning, and having the people working with me that can provide that to clients. And what I think is so important is to doing it at a price 
price which is fair to the clients. So often in this business, we find we find managers of assets, uh, professionals in our business that are doing good things for their clients, but are charging too much. And it's always been my sort of mantra to not only do good things, but do it at a price that's very fair to the clients, fair to us, but fair to the clients. And I think that's very rewarding, especially when the clients themselves are referring new clients to us, which is effectively a statement that you're doing good things for me. Right. How many employees do you have now at the firm? We've got nine employees, and we're just about, incidentally, just about to add another employee, and she's going to start uh, very shortly. Uh, she's from China, and uh, she speaks fluent, uh, relatively fluent uh, English, which is great. She's very well educated, as many from China are. And uh, we look very much forward to it. She has a lot of good quantitative skills, the kinds of skills uh, that uh, will become very helpful to us. So uh, we manage a little over $2 billion in assets, and uh, we've got nine people doing it. And as I say, we're going to be adding another person within a week. Well, that's wonderful. So you've been at this for quite a while. I have. And uh, <laughs> you've, you've seen it from, the, from the, probably the days in which uh, a, a trade was made on a slip of paper, passed from one person to another. Oh, indeed. So indeed. now it's being made electronically, and who, no one quite understands exactly maybe how right, it's made. Right. So what are some of the good things and the bad things that have come out of that? Well, you know, the good things is the advance in technology makes it a lot easier to do what we do. I mean, we used to, I don't know if you remember, but way back, and I do, and I don't think you do, but we used to do things on uh, in, in longhand. On, on spreadsheets that were out in front of us, and we used to pencil in all of the data. Well, you don't have to do that anymore. The advances that we've seen in technology have obviously made it much easier to, first of all, assemble a lot of information, uh, to be able to organize that information, organize it in a way that's uh, uh, useful to you. And so I think technology has been a, a real advance, uh, a real help uh, to, to us in the way we conduct our business. Uh, at the same time, what technology, what's accompanying technology, of course, is speed. Um, it is uh, so rapidly, first of all, developing, and secondly, changing, uh, that you have to be almost lightning-like in, in your analysis, um, as well as the development of yourself as a person with those kinds of quantitative skills. So it's, it's happen things are happening and unfolding very quickly. Yes, it's uh, the world has become more productive because of the uh, exponential progress that we've seen in technology, but it's uh, but it's also had uh, it's it's presented a significant challenge to those of us that are involved in using that technology. It's not easy and it's very very competitive. That's why we're hiring a person who has extreme uh, extremely uh, sound uh, quantitative skills. So how do you how do you keep this is a twenty seven day a week twenty four hours a day type of a business? Mm -hmm. So how do you kind of keep up with that cycle? Again, that's technology, and the reason the way you keep up with the cycle is is uh, again being able to um, uh, being able to have the data. It's all there at your fingertips, and believe me, it's there. There's lots and lots of data. It's all there at your fingertips. That's important, but what's really important is having the skills or the ability to organize that data in a way that's useful. Obviously, you can't look at every number every day, but if you can organize, download the data in a way, in a format, where it's simple and useful, and therefore you can make decisions on the basis of that information, 
It's basically finding ways to use the enormous amount of data that's made available by technology. That's the real skill. That's the real challenge. And you have to be really bright to know how to do that. You have to know what counts and what doesn't count. And the the happy news or the good news is, is that most of the data, most of the information we get doesn't really count. But you have to know what does count, and that's not as much information, but you have to know what it is. Has, has this technology made it easier or more difficult for a small firm like yours to compete in a role? It's made it much more easy. It's much easier. I mean, it, it really has leveled the playing field. Uh, the, the, the edge that a, an army of analysts uh, would have over a small firm with one or two analysts was great. Uh, now it's not so great. We can get all of the information everybody else can get. And again, what makes the difference, the competitive difference, the challenge, the competitive challenge is being able to um, not only have the data, but to be able to organize the data and to use it effectively, to be smart enough to know what counts and what does not count. You know, when I and we talk about our classes over at Union, uh, that's one of the things that I start out with. I talk to all of the students. I say, one thing I want you to learn, you're going to have so much information coming at you. And I'm only going to tell you this now, but most of it doesn't count. So the one thing you're going to learn in this class is what counts and what does not count. How simple this is by, by being able to identify of all a plethora of information that comes at you, what counts and what doesn't count. And that's what's going to make you good uh, versus all your competitors. And there are plenty of them out there. So does you, Johnson, have a secret book that says here's the important data and here's not the important data? How do you learn yeah, that? Well, you know, you, you learn that, I think, over time. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of battle scars I have from from learning it. You know, this, there is no book. Um, it's, it's over time. Uh, you make a lot of mistakes. Mistakes. Uh, you, you learn from those mistakes. Uh, people uh, like to say that it's, uh, it's, you know, some sort of intuition that I might have that makes me particularly good at the process of uh, managing assets. It's really, it's really not so much intuition. It's, it's having made a lot of mistakes, having learned from those mistakes, and having developed good judgment on the basis of that. Everybody has to go through this. Everybody that starts in this business is overwhelmed and intimidated. But believe me, get into the game, get into the business, make those mistakes, learn from those mistakes, and that will develop good judgment. We'll call it maybe even wisdom after a while, but good judgment, and that really just takes time. Once again, it gets back to the most important ingredient, and that is perseverance. Get into the business, stick to it, you will learn, you will get better, everybody can do it. So often I hear you in various parts of the media, whether it be radio or TV, and there's a 45-second soundbite, and you're talking about the markets, and you take something that certainly sounds very, very complex, and you reduce it down to 30 seconds that I, the common man, can understand. How do you do that? Well, you learn how to do that. I think the reason you learn how to do that is because you learn, first of all, um, uh, that, that everybody thinks this is an extraordinarily complex business. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's not a complex business. If you spend a little bit of time in it, you learn that it is very simple. And so being able to describe what is seems to be a very complex uh, event uh, in very simple terms, in my judgment, is very easy because, indeed, 
everything in this world is very simple. You just have to know you have to know enough about it so that you can you can see the simplicity in it. There is nothing that I've ever seen that is too complex for people to understand. They can understand it if they take the time to to really think about it and simplify. You know, I, I, I did a lot, I spent a lot of time studying metaphysics, I was studying philosophy. And if you can take uh, process and reality from Bertrand Russell, uh, which is the discussion of his metaphysics, and understand it, and I think just about everybody, if they spend the time, uh, can do that, uh, you can, you'll see how really simple everything in the complex, so-called complex world of finance is really very simple and easy to explain. Just take the time to spend some time on it. Think about it. Okay. So you've spent a fair amount of time teaching. Yes. Um, what kind of motivated you to, to enter the teaching field? Uh, I, I love uh, the, the thing I love about teaching, uh, first of all, is being able to share what I know with others. Uh, you know, I like to call it those uh, light up your lights moments. And I think anybody who's ever taught uh, knows what a light up your lights moment. It's that moment that that sort of moment when the students clearly get it. They start to get it. And and to be able to share that information, that knowledge with a student and that have them experience that light up your lights, uh, that, that moment when they learn something, that's really exciting. It's exciting for them, and it's extremely gratifying for me. So it all comes under the set of rubric of, um, let's call it psychic feedback. And there's a enormous positive psychic feedback from, from the whole process of teaching. But it really comes from those students getting it, lighting up that moment that has extreme excitement in, in learning something. I enjoy that. They enjoy it. I enjoy it enormously. It's real fun. So I'm sure you must have students come up to you and say, you, I want to get into the business you're in. Yeah. What kind of advice do you give them? Well, the first thing I give them is, um, you know, first of all, prepare yourself. Uh, uh, there's lots of things you can prepare yourself for. And, of course, by the time they come up and see me and say, I want to get into your business, it's too late for a lot of that. A good liberal arts education, good philosophy, English, history, you name it, is always helpful. Uh, a good education is very valuable. Um, sharpen your quantitative skills. Don't overlook statistics. Don't overlook accounting. All of that's very important in my business. And then it gets to the point of getting a job in our business. And I tell every student, uh, prepare yourself for one of the most humbling experiences of your life. You're going to get turned down at a lot of businesses. A lot of businesses are going to say no. But once again, perseverance is the number one thing. And just persevere. Eventually, you will get a job. You probably won't like the job for the next first three to five years. But again, persevere. And in time, you'll not only like the job, but you'll probably do well at the job. And indeed, you'll probably prosper. So if uh, you've in the classroom, you've probably seen lots and lots of student presentations yeah. and their ability to communicate. Uh, do you have some advice for students who want to come, as the master of the one second or the 45 second soundbite, <laughs> right, that communicates a lot of information in that 45 seconds? Do you have any advice for students? On yeah, yeah, I have some advice for students. First of all, you're probably not worth a damn uh, in your presentation uh, for two reasons. Your presentation skills are probably not very good, and you don't know a whole lot about the subject. And there's only one way you can get better at that, and that is keep doing it. Believe me, when I first 
gave my pre- first presentation, or even my 50th presentation for that matter, I, I didn't know, first of all, how to present, and I didn't know what I was talking about. But I kept doing it. And I think in time, it's like anything else. In time, you're going to get, you're going to surprise yourself. You're going to get really good at it. And what's more important is you're going to get to know what you're talking about. Um, I wish I had a nickel for every time I said something that was really foolish. Mm. And uh, believe me, it happened over and over again. But doing it, making those mistakes once again, over and over again, and eventually you get good and good at it. You know, I, I, I'll i be honest with you, Bela, I look back at some of the things I've written, some of the things I've said uh, over over time, and I say, I, I, it's hard for me to believe that I said something so stupid. <laughs> but <laughs> but but the truth is I stayed at it, and, and the more I stayed at it, the better I got at making those presentations, and the more I got to know what I was talking about, and the more I got to recognize how really simple this stuff really is. And so it enabled me to communicate very clearly to folks that thought it was very complex when it's not. Yeah, so one of the things I hear you saying is that the mastery of the content is really, really important. You have to have that as a foundation before you can stand up and start talking about it. Yeah, you really do. You have to master the material, but that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, And it's still not, it still hasn't happened. I'm still learning every day. And believe me, I'm learning a lot every day. I'm still making mistakes and I'm still learning from those mistakes. You bet. It's, It's mastering the content. You know, every time I get asked a question and I don't know the answer to the question, that really helps me. And it helps me in this way is because when I finish with the interview, I go and I find the answer to the questions that I already had answered. And, and, and you'd be surprised. After a while, you do that enough, and you get to learn an awful lot. So you get to master the mm. content. And then, of course, mastering the skill of, of communicating that is also something that, once again, takes time. So you've been on TV, on CNBC, New York Times, etc. Yeah. Um, how, how did you establish yourself as a resource for the media? Well, I could tell you a very long story, and it's one of my proudest stories, if you want me to. Go. Uh, this is really one of my proudest stories um, of how it all started. Um, this is going to take a little bit of time, but uh, there was a person on Wall Street who couldn't get a job. His name was Bill Pundman, and he was trying to get a job through a headhunter on Wall Street. And... Bill couldn't get a job. Uh, He was extraordinarily qualified. He'd been to the University of Missouri, played on an Orange Bowl football team, went to Columbia Business School, and nobody would give him a job. And I said, I'm going to give this guy a chance. So I gave him a chance, and he came up to my office, and he started to work, and he wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal, and he said, if you ever want to know anything about the oil services business, I'm the guy to talk to. So they called him. And they called him and they asked him a question about the oil services business, and it was hopeless. You know, he couldn't communicate. So they asked to speak to somebody else on the telephone. And I picked up the phone and I said, What's, what, what can I help you? And they said, we can't talk to Bill because he can't communicate it with us. Could you either? And so I said, well, I'd be happy to try to help you. It's the first time I ever got an interview. And Wall Street Journal kept calling me back every ever since. That was in the 1970s. That was wow. quite a while ago. And it was all because I did something I thought which was very nice or very positive for Bill Punman, who incidentally was an extraordinary person. I'll never forget one of the most eye-opening events in my life. I'm sorry to just rattle on about no, this. That's great. But I'll never forget the first day he came to work, and it was just before Christmas, 
uh, in Wall Street. We, were, we had an office down at the, at the foot of Wall Street, and I'll never forget this as long as I live. I left my office at about 5 or 5.30 and walked up Wall Street, and standing there in a camel's hair coat, ringing the Salvation Army bell and collecting money for the Salvation Army was Bill Pundon, the guy I just hired as an analyst. Wow. He was quite a guy. He clearly had an effect on you. Yeah, he 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 uh, he was important to me, and uh, um, you know, as I say, I'm very proud that I took the chance on him. Yeah, and uh, and it had a payback which I never would have anticipated. Yeah, it's interesting how we all have moments in our lives where you make a little decision that at the time you don't think much of it. And it has a huge difference in the outcome of what happens to it, it, Yeah, it's it's incredible. I mean, there are things, there's lots of things like that that, I, you know, that, that I like, I, I say it's almost luck. <laughs> you know, it's good fortune. Yeah. And maybe it's good fortune, but I don't know, maybe it's trying to figure out the right thing yeah. to do. But, but you did make the decision to hire him. So I the, did there, make there was an overt decision that I you did made. make an, and the, I'll never forget the, uh, the, uh, the uh, the headhunter on Wall Street. Uh, when I said, "Okay, I'll tell you what, I'm going to hire him," and there was a euphoric scream in the background of his on the telephone <laughs> <laughs> that Funman finally has the job. Job, yeah. He, but he was deserved the job because yeah. he, you know, he graduated from Columbia Business School. That, you know, he had a an interpreter with him that would speak yes. on his behalf. Uh, you know, he was he was a fairly bright person. He really was. He was yeah. very qualified. He just had that problem. Yeah. Well, great. Bela, that was a fascinating conversation. I'd like to start our discussion talking about courage. How do you define it? How do you practice it? How do you build courage? Is it something you're born with or is it something you can develop? What's been your observation over the years? Well, that's a great question. You know, the uh, are entrepreneurs born or are they made, right, is always an interesting question. And people debate that forever and ever. But let's just focus a little bit on courage because I think it's really important. And, and you really talked about the importance courage had for him. One of the ways that I think about courage is I would characterize it just slightly a little bit different, Right. To me, it's sort of like entrepreneurs have an overabundance of self-confidence, right? Meaning they're not willing to fail, they're not willing to fail, they're willing to keep going, and they're confident in their abilities to be successful, and they're out to prove something, right? And I think if you listen to you, he was out to prove that he could do this, maybe just to himself, but that's a big component of it. So I think this overabundance of self-confidence and out to prove something is really important. And I think any entrepreneur that you can hear interviews with, whether it's Steve Jobs or whether it's anyone else, they've all had situations where they have tripped, they've gone through hard times, and they've stuck with it. Sometimes for many, many years before they've been able to be successful. So I think it is a key component. And I think you articulated it very well in his comments. That brings up the question of perseverance also. Are there some ways 
that you've seen people develop perseverance, develop that thick skin, develop the ability to fail and get yourself back up and, and fix things. I mean, how do you develop that, especially for people who might be a little uh, younger, earlier in their career? Um, something happens, a, a boss gives them a bad review and they and they lose it. I've seen this. Right. Or um, a client gives them bad feedback and they lose it and they get angry or they lash out or they blame somebody else. Um, what are some ways that we can talk to people who may be preparing to become an entrepreneur, preparing to follow a different path to to really kind of get through some of the defensiveness um, and to build this this perseverance? Yeah, that's that's a great question. I think some of that. At least one element of it is a personality trait, right? There are some people who want to be pleasers. They want to make other people happy, right? That's part of their nature. And I think if you're in a situation where people are being critical of you and you have that personality trait or it's a strong personality trait, then that, that's, that's where you're really shaken. It's like, gee, I wasn't because your success is whether you made that person happy or not. Right. That's mm -hmm. how you're judging your success, where in in these situations, that's not how you judge your success when you're an entrepreneur. It's not whether you made this person happy or not. It's not whether that person agreed with you or not. Uh, so I think that's one key element of, of this perseverance. Right. The the sort of ability to say, you know what? My job is not to make other people happy. My job is to provide other folks with a product or service uh, that that gives them good value. Now that'll make them happy, right? But that, in the long run, in the long run, right. right, right, and it and it may take some while. They may not realize it at first. So I think I think that's one key element is is sort of this personality trait and not being devastated by other people being critical of you because you other people are going to be critical. The whole notion of entrepreneurship is you're out there carving out the trail in the mountain, right? You're out carving the trail out in the forest. So people are going to say you're crazy and that can't bother you. If it bothers you, I think you need to have your own mechanisms for dealing with that, right? So I wonder if you couldn't use goal setting as a tool. So making sure that you have explicit goal set and that nowhere in those goals states that other people have to give me praise or be satisfied with this. Right. And in fact, part of the explicit goals can be to withstand some negative criticism, whether it's a bad Yelp review or a bad focus group or an investor tells you your idea is crazy and it'll never happen. And I wonder if you can make some goals like that explicit if you're the kind of person and I'm that way by nature that I want to make other people happy. And if somebody tells me they're they're disappointed in me, that's a, a very negative thing. And it, it sometimes throws me for a loop. I've learned to grow out of that, I think, over time. But I wonder if some goal setting wouldn't wouldn't help people get over that hump and develop this this perseverance. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Mike. And think about it in the terms of maybe what I, when someone's critical, I don't want to be upset. My goal is not to be upset and to learn from it, right? So, so the real goal is listen to what that person has to say because there's a, maybe there's a gem in there, right? So instead of sort of being defensive right away and saying, oh my gosh, you know, uh, uh, you're upset with me, I'm devastated, say, okay, how can I take what this person 
just said, really carefully listen and maybe explore, right? Uh, dive into it with that person, understand better as opposed to shutting down. Um, we all have, I know I have that tendency, right? If someone's critical mm-hmm. of me, I kind of shut down. Uh, my defensive mechanisms go up and I stop listening. Well, I, I got to get better at doing just the opposite, right? Really opening up <laughs> and saying, okay, what was the challenge here? Because that's the learning opportunity, right? That's the learning opportunity. And I recently heard an interview with uh, someone and they said that every person in the company every day reads all of the social media critical comments about their company. And and then they have a meeting and they try to say, what conclusions can we draw from this, right? Is there something here that that these people who posted these comments are seeing that we inside the company are not seeing so we can then turn that into a learning exercise and change our product, modify our product, improve our product or service. Neat. So maybe some rules of thumb are first, before you apologize, say thank you for the feedback, right? Second, if it's appropriate, it's okay to apologize, right? But I think, thank you. I'm sorry. Tell me more about this. And then ask three questions. What was going on when this happened? Or why did you conclude X, Y, or Z? Or what problems do you see with my financial plan? Or what features didn't you like and why didn't you like them? And follow up, take good notes, as you said. And then your goal might be to learn at least one concrete thing, to go do some after action work and and do some more research or talk to some more people and try to figure out why. And if you can, in every, when you get negative feedback, thank the person, apologize if necessary, ask three questions and spend at least 30 minutes doing some follow-up research to learn something from it. That might be a neat set of habits for people who might feel like they're a little short on uh, on perseverance, right? Or this stick to itness. Um, uh, that I think might be helpful, especially to people with less experience in entrepreneurship and some of the younger, early career people. That's that's a fantastic set of three good points, Mike. And and I think the other thing that will be an outcome of that type of behavior is that you will take a potentially negative interaction and turn it into a positive one for both parties, right? For both the person yeah. who was criticizing or because uh, you're going to, both for the person who's been criticizing, because they're going to say, oh, my gosh, this person asked me more. They're actually listening they, to they me. They care. Right. Yeah, so they, they care. care. So that's going to take that and turn it into a positive situation for them. And and that can lead to nothing but good things uh, in relationships and in business as well. Excellent. Good summary, Mike. Thanks, Bela. Let's switch gears and talk a little bit about what Hugh said dealing with quantitative analysis and technology. Obviously, these were very important components to Hugh, both personally and for the success of his business. What advice do you have for people, either younger, right in in, in college, university age, kind of like the the young kids that that Hugh was talking about, or older people that might be thinking about striking out on their own uh, later in their career? Um, How do they develop the quantitative and technical knowledge they might need to succeed in the areas that he was talking about. Yeah, this whole notion of quantitative skills has has sort of been a theme and I think uh, most most of our podcasts to date, right? I think everyone's made some comment about it that we have all this data and uh, finding individuals who know how to analyze that data um, 
is a key skill. And I think you reinforce that. And in, it's interesting in financial services, that's where a lot of this data analysis started, right? So that's there's always been uh, quantitative people uh, who've worked in that industry. Uh, but I think it continues to be in a, a high level of importance and skill set. So there's two pieces to that, I think, that you talked about. One is the notion of just having the raw skills, right? Taking the statistics courses, understanding how to take the data and do something with it, right? Which you can learn in school. You can take classes for that. You can get degrees in, in data analytics. Um, so that's all good. That gives you a baseline set of skills. Then I think you talked about having the experience of how to use that data and how to mine the data for the key important pieces because 90%, 95% of the data is worthless. There's nothing there, but you have to be able to figure out how to find that 5%. And I think one of the things that you talked about was this notion of, you know, hanging out with or being part of an organization uh, that does that so you can learn because it's more heuristic. It's not, it's not as analytical as you might think. And it's more one of experience and wisdom that allows you to draw proper conclusions from all of that data. Agreed. Totally. Um, and, you know, I think that I've always kind of emphasized the idea of you don't have to know everything about a topic to be effective in that area. You need to know enough to ask good questions and enough to evaluate who can help you with this right? and build a network of people that complement the expertise that you have and don't have. Um, and I think it's this idea of getting the basic knowledge and enough to ask good questions and doing that either through school or through self-learning or through observation. Um, but yeah, I mean, he just made that point that the quant stuff is critical, the technical tools, right? Remember he made that point about technology being so critical for entrepreneurs. It allows them to compete, right? With bigger firms, um, you know, using essentially software instead of all this corporate experience and corporate heft. Um, artificial intelligence is a great example of this, where the AI tools that are going to be available to small business people can really help speed uh, improve the speed and the quality of decisions that are made. So I think this is something that people should be paying attention to, that this idea of data analytics and disruptive technologies such as AI are things that they just need to start to acquaint themselves with through the business press and through um, learning as much as they can from people who know about it. Yeah, I think related to this, it's this other notion that you talked about that with the advent of the digital economy, so to speak, uh, it makes it possible for the small person, the small shop, the 10 person company to compete in his industry with the likes of Goldman Sachs, Bain Capital, et cetera, right? 20, 30 years ago, that was almost impossible. It was almost impossible to do a startup in this field because those large corporations con actually controlled all of that data and other people didn't have access and they excluded other people from that gaining access to it. Now, a lot of that data is available publicly and it makes it so a small shop has the same data and it's what you do with the data that's important. And that's one of the ways in which you has taken his experience and his wisdom to differentiate his business, compete with the big, big boys if you will, and provide good value to his customers, which is another thing he talked about. He was 
saying, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to provide value to my customers. And the fact that my customers are recommending me to the people that they know is a strong, good indication of that. Yeah, this is neat. And this reminds me of a, a, a class that I had uh, a couple of weeks ago. And I don't want to get too far in the weeds in this, but the idea of the differences between explicit knowledge and tacit knowledge. And Hugh was talking about the importance of having both. The explicit knowledge is, yes, I know statistics and I know analytics and I know how to use this software and I can teach you how to do it in five steps. There's a YouTube video on it, so on and so forth. And explicit knowledge, or I'm sorry, and tacit knowledge is this built up intuitive that you learn through experience on how to make the right decision or how to throw out what good data are from bad data or how to interpret results in a way that adds value to the customers. And this you can really learn only through observation and trial and error. So it kind of sets up this neat um, juxtaposition of, yep, I need to get the explicit knowledge through whether it's formal classes or YouTube videos or self-study by reading, you know, uh, those types of of knowledge transfer activities and the tacit knowledge, which you can learn on the job or learn from observation and learn from asking good questions, um, that you need both to really make it. And the combination of these two is what makes things unique and difficult to imitate and makes entrepreneurs successful. Tacit knowledge can be developed fairly quickly. It's not that you need to, to work in industry for 30 years to develop it. But again, if you're a non-traditional entrepreneur that's in your 40s or 50s, you have way more tacit knowledge, I think, than you give yourself credit for. And kind of exploring this in your own mind, and what do I know how to do intuitively? And what have I developed over the years? Those can be really powerful sources of value creation for customers in the way that Hugh was talking about, that I think um, non-traditional entrepreneurs maybe or older entrepreneurs can say, yeah, this is really something where I can apply something either in my own field like you did, or if you've listened to some of our earlier podcasts into a different field um, that, that is, is completely new from where I'm at, but I can apply knowledge from industry A into industry B. So I think this is a really neat way to, to think about what he was talking about. Yeah, I, I agree, Mike. You know, the, as you were saying that, one of the things I was thinking about is this notion that, um, whether it's marketing or whether it's statistics or whether it's finance, there's some common elements across all businesses, right? All the numbers add up the same way. If you're doing a regression analysis, you do it the same way, whether you're in finance or whether you're in engineering or, or in accounting. Um, but it's this, it's this notion of sort of what do I do with that that comes with experience, um, and, and that was really what you was talking about, right? This notion of having that experience because each industry has little subtleties about it that I think you fundamentally have to work in that industry for a period of time to understand and appreciate. So one of the always risks of coming from outside an industry into a new one is yes, you can do the regression analysis, but you're not going to understand the subtleties that exist in that business on what that is important, what that is not important. So take you, for example, you know, who who started his entrepreneurial endeavors sort of late in life, uh, late 50s, if I, I think. And, uh, you know, he took all of that industry knowledge because he stayed within the same industry. So he took all of the industry knowledge that he learned and working for 25 years in the financial services business and brought it into his new endeavor and he had some ideas on how he could do 
better and do a better job for his customers. Um, and I think that's the great advantage of, of staying within an industry and applying those skills because each industry has subtleties about it that are different uh, from industry to industry. The regression analysis is the same, but it's what to do with those numbers that comes with experience and what to do with those numbers varies from industry to industry to industry. So I think it was a great example of sort of not thinking about entrepreneurship only as something for young 20-somethings to do, right? Or college dropouts to do, uh, which is what you read a lot about in the press. But also there's plenty of opportunities for people with 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years experience who then move into an entrepreneurial endeavor because they have an idea for doing it better. And we've actually seen that in several of our podcast guests who went and worked for four or five years, uh, some more, uh, before they embarked on their entrepreneurial adventure. Yeah, they can look at our talk with Dave DeSalt, right, who was at GE for, um, I forget, it was 15 or 20 years, right, and then jumped over and did a startup, which was which was great. Yeah, I think this is an interesting avenue to explore for people in their 40s and 50s to say, hey, if I really want to do something different and take some risk, um, now is a great time to take all that accumulated knowledge and turn it into a valuable experience for customers that um, they can build. It might not be a $10 billion business, might be a $10 million business, but have a nice income, have a really satisfying um, lifestyle with control over um, who you work for and the kind of work you, you do and really do something that fills a gap um, in the marketplace. So I think there's a lot there. One of the, the ways to me that you really in, uh, enabled this to happen was this commitment to lifelong learning, this combination between I want to learn every day and this humility to say, I know there's a lot I don't know. And as things change, I know I need to learn more. And to me, that was a neat combination that led to his success. Do you have some habits, Bela, that you can share? Um, I know one of the things that I really respect about you is I consider you a lifelong learner and somebody who's undergone uh, lots of career jumps and taken the road less traveled several times. Um, what's made you a lifelong learner? Do you have some habits you can share with our listeners? So I think, um, I don't know if it's a habit, but it, it's a trait that drives a habit, right? The trait is I'm curious about stuff, right? And I've always, always have been. I mean, I can remember as a little kid just being taking stuff apart to try to figure out how it works, right? Uh, or, you know, dig getting a bunch of ants and putting them inside a jar to figure out how the hell the ant colony looks like, <laughs> right? And I was just curious about stuff. And I think that I've been a little bit successful in channeling that curiosity into things that uh, help help build businesses, have helped to build my career. Um, and I think that, you know, one of the one of the, and one of the things my wife said about me a number of years ago, Elaine, who always comes out with these great profound statements, uh, said, you know, one of your best features about you is you have a curious mind, but the challenge is you have a short attention span. <laughs> so I think that's, that's just the trait that I have. And so well, how can we how can we sort of turn this into something, right? If if you have a curious mind, right? One is you read a lot, 
you observe a lot, you kind of think about stuff. One of the great things for me that happened, and I didn't start this till I was in my 30s, my early 30s, I started running. And so I run for like an hour a day. And that's my thinking time, right? That's a time that I reserve almost every day to sort of say, okay, I can let my mind wander. I can think about stuff. And, you know, for some people, it's the taking the 10 minute shower in the morning, right? That's their thinking time. But we all have to have some of that time. You have to have that time that says, okay, gee, that's sort of interesting. I'd like to learn more about that. And then how can I turn that into a set of actions, which results in something? That's great, Bella. I think that's great advice for people. And whatever it is to carve out that thinking time is really important. Read, ask good questions. Um, You're great at asking questions. And one of the things that I like about you is to every interesting statement that I've heard somebody make, you can very often on the fly come up with a great question that follows up, that elicits more knowledge from the person and gets them to tell the story behind the statement that they just made. So I think that's another skill that you have in terms of getting people to draw out, to teach you more about what they know and how they draw conclusions. So that's another thing to think about. Yeah, uh, thanks for bringing that up, Mike. And I think it goes back to my curiosity. But another observation I'll make is um, early in my career, I noticed that a lot of people who ask questions actually answer the question <laughs> when they ask it. Or, or they confine the question to, gee, is it A or is it B, right? So they're asking, right? And and I, and I remember making this observation going, that wait a minute, these, these folks are asking questions, but they're actually answering the question or they're limiting the response from the individual who's going to respond. So one of the things I try to do is ask open-ended questions, right? So like, tell me more about that. Uh, tell me how that happened, Um and not try to say, well, is it because of this or is it because of that? Um, and when you ask those open-ended questions, that's one, at least I learn the most. This is cool. Last thoughts about the interview with Hugh Johnson. Hmm. Good question, Mike. Um, I, I think courage, perseverance, right, are just keys. He talked about that. Uh, he he, oh, the other thing that we haven't touched on is he, he said when he, he did his startup, uh, he gave everyone who came with him and who joined a stake in the company. And he just sort of said that in passing, but he said it changes the way people behave, right? And we've all heard that, right? That's sort of common thing that you do. Uh, but it's interesting to hear uh, someone of the stature of you, Johnson, sort of talk about the importance of that you know, c- coming from the background he came of, of working in larger financial services companies. Uh, so giving people a stake in the company. He also talked about good value to the customer, right? I have to differentiate my product. For me to come out with products and services that are just like Goldman Sachs or, or other folks in the industry is no good. I have to figure out how to provide better value to my customers. Neat. So differentiated product, customer value, aligning the interests of your employees with your own three great tools uh, that entrepreneurs can follow to uh, that should give them the confidence and the courage to make a move. If you've got something unique and different and you've got a way to execute that and you've got uh, a way, a, a product or service that customers are willing to pay for, this is the foundations, right? Of successful entrepreneurs. Yeah, Mike, I agree. Uh, let's wrap this up. That was a great interview uh, with you, Johnson. And uh, 
Again, folks, uh, our listeners, if you have any questions or comments, uh, please feel free to email Mike or I at bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Let us know how you think about the podcast, if you have any suggestions or comments, or if you have suggestions for people we might uh, talk to and interview. Uh, that would be great. And if you have uh, good comments, uh, please also give us a nice review on iTunes. It helps to drive traffic and get us higher up in the rankings and help other people discover the podcast. So until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye.